Order! Order! There will be order in this court, and the witness will answer the question. Well, Your Honor, the fact is that we just published the episode many months after we recorded it. And in that time, the whole crypto market crashed. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't have any part in it. It happened, and we figured we'd publish the episode anyway. I mean, in my defense, a lot of the things that we talked about I think were still pretty relevant. Cryptocurrencies and other alternative payment methods were used to enable cybercrime pretty much as long as Bitcoin was around, or at least as long as it was worth anything. And we thought that the reporting was the responsible thing to do. And I don't know if that leads to criminal contempt, but it's what happened. Case file number 3.6. Ma, 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 my Satoshi. Observed by Agent Grinshaw. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ymir. Hmm? Have you ever bought any Bitcoin or have you ever used any crypto coin to buy anything or, or have any investments in it? Uh, I have not, actually. I I remember when Bitcoin like first hit the scene and like people were kind of like talking about it and buying some pieces. I just I just never got into it. I never really even had like an interest. Well, I, I heard about it for a long time, but I, I I fundamentally didn't like the idea because of some of the economics involved. But we're not going to talk about any of that today. Okay. We're going to talk about it strictly about how it works and how it's been kind of involved in information security. Oh, okay. But do you know what the first ever Bitcoin transaction was? Uh, is that the one for the, the tweet? Or something? No, this one was for two pizzas from a Papa John's. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Back in 2010, a guy named Laszlo Henyex, uh bought two pizzas from Papa John's. He paid uh, about 10,000 Bitcoins, which is today worth about half a million. No, nope. Sorry, there's a smudge on my screen. Half a billion dollars. Oh, those are pricey pizzas. Yeah. Anyway, so... I know that I didn't think that I didn't know very much about Bitcoin. And I know that you said that you didn't know very much about Bitcoin either. So I went through and I started reading from the beginning, like the original documents that came from Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym. And we still don't know for sure who it is. There's been a little bit less than a dozen, like really strong guesses, but we still don't know officially who it is. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I did not know that. I figured we would have known by now there have been some guesses and i didn't actually go that deep into who it might be because mm. that's that wasn't what i was trying to focus on right yeah but he is the entity known as satoshi nakamoto is expected to have around six billion dollars worth of bitcoin mm. anyway just so he released a paper on october 31st 2008 defining bitcoin uh, was published on halloween 2008 as a digital-only currency with properties that were anonymous and decentralized. Okay. He specifically talked about a centralized mediation server, and there were parts about anonymity that we'll get to in a little bit that were specifically part of his original paper. Hmm. So, so the an anonymity aspect of Bitcoin was intended from the beginning. Okay. So the paper laid out the two essential components of Bitcoin. One is the proof of work how you prove Bitcoins and how you make them scarce okay. so that people can't make them. And blockchain, which is 
how transactions are kept track of and how you deal with some of the fundamental problems with the digital currency. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen only one video on how blockchain works. You know, we're going to go a little bit into it, not actually that deep into the technicals of it. You just need to know what it does, not necessarily how the hashing mechanisms work. Mm. And let me tell you, I I feel like I understand a little bit of it, but I, every time I got a little bit further in, I was like, I want to know how the next thing works. And <laughs> I just didn't have time to like break down the code and be satisfied that I totally understood it. Right, um, right. But anyway, so before we get to talking about blockchain, let's there's the proof of work mechanism, which was, in Satoshi's words, a mechanism to basically make sure, well, I'm paraphrasing, that the amount of CPU time invested, like that whoever had the most CPU time to invest was going to get the proof of work. Mm -hmm. And the proof of work was was rewarded with Bitcoins. Okay. Because I, I do remember, I think I just started like a semester in college when I was like finally getting into cybersecurity. And I remember like a lot of people talking about buying uh, graphics cards and they're like, oh, we got to like get into Bitcoin farming now and stuff like that. Well, so a Bitcoin proof of work takes a, and I'm simplifying this a great deal, but it takes an end hash that they're looking for. Mm. And they create a chain of hashes with values in the middle. And those values in the middle are what you're guessing in order to generate a chain of hashes that create the value that is published at the end. Huh, okay. The important thing, even if I'm not getting the exact technicals of how it's performed, is is that you're doing a lot of hashing operations, mm, okay. which are things that graphic cards are actually really good at. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, people string together a lot of uh, GPUs for uh, rainbow tables. Yeah. And we also know that uh, because of that, it's made graphic cards much more expensive because there is a market for graphic cards outside of people playing video games or doing CAD CAM, but mostly people playing video games. Mm -hmm. So proof of work rewards you with Bitcoins at the end. But now you have what is in fact a digital artifact of a Bitcoin. So one of the primary things you have to prevent in any digital currency is somebody taking one digital artifact that represents the currency and spending it twice. Mm -hmm. And if you can spend it twice, you can spend it any number of times and then nothing works. Right. Well. That's what the blockchain's all about. Okay. Before we dig into blockchains, there's some stats that are actually kind of that are important generally to Bitcoin. One question, just before we go on. So, like in the process of getting to this final hash, like what is what is the relevance of that final hash? Like, is this like what like why why are you getting there? Um well, so every so often there will be a set of solutions. The job, quote unquote. Yeah. And whoever gets there first gets the Bitcoins. Okay, okay. So it's just kind of a, a race to win a prize. Yes, it's a race to solve a crypto problem. It's not that different from back in the early 2000s, actually. There was distributed.net and a few prizes for breaking various crypto algorithms. Uh, RC4 and RC5 were done this, were done this oh, way. Okay. And they had a encrypted chunk and you knew what the plain text was. And to do the analysis, what some folks were doing was real crypto analysis of a known text attack. But what distributed.net was doing was saying, hey, load something onto your computer. It'll interact with our servers, grab a set of, of keys to try, and 
now your computer will work through that chunk of things and check back in as soon as it's done. And it distributes that all over the place. And the thing is that this kind of problem, all of these kinds of problems actually, are very good for distributed computing mm-hmm. because distributed computing is lots of CPU low interconnect. And because you only have to talk about the table and most of the work is actually doing the computation, Beowulf clusters or, or this truly distributed computing like distributed.net becomes very viable for those kinds of problems, but not for other kinds of problems. Okay. Ones that you need true mainframes for things like uh, uh, geological calculations where thing where one node's calculations depend on other node's calculations. Interconnect speed is a massive part of how fast you can solve a problem. Oh, okay. Um, this is actually why mainframes are important to some problems, but you can get away with much cheaper ways of going about your problem solving in other kinds of problems. This is also the foundation of how MapReduce works, which is another way of doing the same kind of thing, of giving a computationally intensive problem to worker nodes that don't need to talk to each other. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd really like never known like what the hell was the like the point of even like farming these like what what was going on? Yeah, well, it's it's important to note that at least the way that Bitcoin is imp- implemented, it's not productive work. Okay. The only product is that you get the proof of work for Bitcoin. The Bitcoin has no inherent value on itself in and of itself, and neither does the proof of work. Okay, gotcha. But since we were talking about distributed.net and everything, it should be noted that the SETI net.net project where uh, that was doing signals analysis for extraterrestrial life, mm-hmm. that was basically an outgrowth of the same technology that allowed distributed.net to work. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Now, what I think might be interesting, I don't know if anybody's done it, it didn't come up in my research, but I don't know if there's anything preventing somebody from doing a uh, the same kind of approach to, min- to mining Bitcoin. Bitcoins may be worth enough at this point where you basically say, all right, load this, com- this thing on your, C- on your computer. It'll run on the cores that you're not using. Mm-hmm. And if your computer is the one that solves the problem, you get X amount of the Bitcoins that come, that come out. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else that hits some threshold gets some part of that reward. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, right now, a Bitcoin's worth a little bit less than $55,000 as of today. And you get six and a quarter Bitcoins out of every proof of work, Mm. which amounts to a few hundred thousand dollars, which might make that kind of thing worthwhile because you could probably run the management system of it really cheaply. Your biggest security worry actually would be making sure that whoever came up with a good proof of work didn't just keep it for themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If you did it in the most simple implementation, it would be vulnerable to that kind of thing mm. because it would just be, oh, you're right. You wrote it to disk. I see that. And I'm telling you not to go and transmit it. Boom. Bitcoins are mine, bitches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, so right now there are about 18.9 million Bitcoins mined so far. And due to a deliberate design of Bitcoin and Bitcoin specifically, other crypto coins have and mostly not incorporated this uh, this uh, this limitation, there will only be 21 million Bitcoins. Oh, really? Total? Yeah, uh, total. It was built hmm. intentionally on purpose to be that way. Interesting. Okay. Now, 
I'm not saying that nobody could ever come up with a solution to extend that. I don't know if they will. That seems like a potentially pretty major change to the, to the whole system. But 21 million Bitcoins ever. I'm very interested. I know I wasn't going to talk about the market, but, I, but I'm very interested. I'm very interested to see what the market does when there's no more Bitcoins to be mined. That's what I was just thinking in my head was, yeah, like when, there, when there's zero left to mine, like, yeah, does the, the, the price skyrocket due to the scarcity? Or does it just fall out? And maybe at some point we'll talk about that, my, my understanding of the economics, but that's, that is a very deep hole for me to jump into. But anyway, the last little piece of stats is that it's estimated by a French Bitcoin Research Institute that uh, estimates that between three and four million of that 18.9 million are irretrievably lost. Oh, due to like people with their portable hard drives and lost yep. key and stuff like that. Lost keys, destroyed drives, mm-hmm. unreadable drives, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read uh, like horror stories like that just on Reddit. And uh, my girlfriend's brother who passed away actually had some Bitcoins that he purchased. And like they're on a laptop or something that her, her parents still have. So they've asked me to like look into it the next time I'm on the East Coast. Mm. Let's see, like if there's any way to get, I'm like, I, I part of his his big wallet or whatever, and I'm like, I I highly doubt it. Yeah. So chances are, if it's a decent implementation of a Bitcoin wallet, you're not going to be able to get at the private keys without the password. Mm, yeah. But hey, you know, I've heard people talk about various recovery ideas because early on in Bitcoin, it's possible that people were using lower encrypted wallets, and maybe you can recover some stuff because more computation power is available now and maybe it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Cause this is, this is probably very early on into the entire thing that he got interested in and bought a few. Yeah. So I don't know, but I can tell you that I haven't heard of anybody doing that kind of thing yet at this point, attacking the wallets rather than mining the coins. Um, anyway. So the next important component is blockchain. What is blockchain? Well, blockchain is, an immutable transaction record, a method of tracking transactions that every new transaction incorporates a a fingerprint data, a hash or checksum mechanism of uh, the previous transactions. So you can't falsify a transaction after another transaction has happened afterward, right? Okay. So that means that you can't rewind Bitcoin. You could do another transaction that reverses a transaction, but you can't invalidate a transaction in a blockchain. That's central to the way that it works. Hmm, okay. And so if we do a tra- if I transition a Bitcoin to you, it goes away from my wallet and goes to your wallet. Hmm. Now there's some crypto in between where it's not a straight digital signed my public key and your public key. Right. But that transaction happens and your wallet now has a Bitcoin and my wallet has one less Bitcoin. So there's no way to really contest uh, a purchase like after you committed it. Yes. Mm. And this is central to the design of uh, Bitcoin. Now, this kind of immutable transaction chain wasn't invented by Satoshi, Mm. but that white paper is credited with like the first implementation of a blockchain and the, the first time they call it a blockchain. Um, but the first ideas were done by a uh, cryptographer named uh, David Chalm in a 1982 dissertation and uh, further expanded 
upon about 10 years later in 1992 by Stuart Haber and W. Scott Shrinetta. So like that idea didn't come whole cloth from Satoshi, but he did take that idea and turn it into something functional. Okay. That paper defined Bitcoin's blockchain. And in January, 2009, the Genesis block, block zero, the beginning of the blockchain for Bitcoin was produced. So it was only a year later that we had that first pizza. That's crazy. Like he's got to be kicking himself for that. I mean, like at the time he didn't know. So it's kind of, right. you know, yeah. hindsight's 2020, but still. Yeah. At this point, it's a crazy story. Uh, maybe it's worse than the guy who invented Ethernet and basically didn't get paid almost anything for it. Yeah. And now it's ubiquitous and everywhere. And even when you're not using the wires, the framing of Ethernet is in so many other network technologies. Yeah. I feel like at least it's a good story. If he's not crazy bitter about it, it's a good story to tell at a yeah. bar or something. Be like, hey, this one time. I've definitely seen some uh, news articles that kind of talk about that, that have interviewed him. <laughs> I just don't remember exact. I don't remember them well enough. And it was just the way to start the episode. So I could go deep into <laughs> right. it. Um, anyway. And that's actually a thing that I'm finding that I found in, in doing this episode is everything I wanted to cover in this episode, I could have spent 10 times more time on. Oh, yeah. So uh, in that 2000, January 2009, there was open source software released for all the Bitcoin software. And um, there's some debate over the use of public blockchains versus private blockchains for various applications because, you know, blockchains don't necessarily... Well, in fact, that's the whole big thing about blockchain as a technology is you don't have to use it for cryptocurrencies or even NFTs. They can be used for any kind of immutable transaction records that you want, might want to do. Mm, okay. uh, in fact, any kind of digital property like IP address blocks or DNS names could also be tracked via, via blockchain mm. instead of uh, the way that they're tracked right now, is, which is basically as a database. But while that would make the transactions easily traceable or or not necessarily traceable but you know the person that you're getting it from definitely has it kind of thing you have that problem where you can't go back yeah 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 but crypto coins generally want public blockchains they want as a matter of everybody's confidence in them to be able to say you can check the transaction transaction record yourself if you've got the time and computation power available yeah that, that makes sense so everybody can can validate transactions in a in a uh, blockchain. And in fact, there are some groups out there. This is a relatively new thing, but they're doing Bitcoin forensics as a business. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So the next question that comes to mind usually is how anonymous is Bitcoin? And from Satoshi's original Bitcoin paper. The necessity to announce all transactions publicly precludes this method, but privacy can still be maintained by breaking the flow of information in another place, by keeping the public keys anonymous. The public can see that someone is sending an amount of money to someone else, but without the information linking the transaction to anyone. This is a similar level of, of information released by stock exchanges where the time and size of individual trades, the tape, is made public, but without telling anyone who the parties were. So... The anonymity is built in as a property of creating a separation firewall between the identity of someone who own, who has a public key, that person and their and their wallet. And because of the mechanism in the transaction, you don't have both wallet IDs in, in the same transaction record. Oh, okay. One hash, one block says this went down by 
the transaction size. This one and this side says this went up by this size. Mm, okay. What that means is that in just a straight blockchain, you can read who sent a size of transaction and who received a size of transaction and time correlate them and size correlate them to say, okay, well, these two are probably talking to one another. Right, yeah. So the question becomes, how can we introduce more anonymity to the system? Well, that came pretty quickly after. The answers uh, are tumblers or mixers. So tumblers operate by having a large number of participants send amounts of cryptocurrency to a central set of accounts over a period of time. Mm, okay. A randomly designated and not short period of time. Not like seconds, but like days at least. Mm. And then the tumbler accounts after the fact, return that amount of Bitcoins to the wallets that contributed, but in random amounts in random time intervals. Mm, okay, okay. And that creates a transaction record where you see a bunch of money go into the tumbler, you see somebody get out of the tumbler, but you don't know which coins went where mm. or who or who paid what. Okay. And it really confuses the forensics. It's, it's intended to foil forensics of the blockchain record. That's cool. I like, that's a really cool concept. Uh, the oldest one that I could find reference to is Bitcoin Fog uh, going back to 2011. But in 2013, it was used to launder uh, 26,000 Bitcoins stolen from the sheet marketplace, uh, Darknet Bazaar for Illegal Drugs. Nice. Lots of fun. So speaking of Darknet Bazaars for Illegal Drugs and Bitcoin, we kind of have to talk about Silk Road. Mm, oh, yeah. Did you ever hear about Sunk Road? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember, actually, I might have heard about it a little bit, like um, like perusing 4chan uh, before it got taken down and all the news hit and everything yeah. like that. Well, it was accessible only through Tor. And, and actually, we need to do an episode about Tor eventually. Mm, yeah, we do. But uh, it was started in February 2011 by Dread Pirate Roberts, named by federal pro- prosecutors as uh, Ross Albrecht. Mm-hmm. And it was a marketplace for basically anything. He has statements saying it, the normal libertarian ideas of, hey, anybody should be able to buy anything if uh, somebody wants to sell it and somebody wants to buy it. Including murder. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> well, so that's alleged because the federal prosecutors were never, were not able to convict on the murder charges or on the murder for hire charges. Oh, weren't they? Oh, okay. Really? I never really like um, followed much of it after. Well, I remember hearing about the murder yeah. charges, but I didn't realize that they weren't able to convict on them. Hmm, okay. Like that was the sensational thing. That was the thing that was in the news at the time, but turns out that they weren't able to convict on that. Yeah. Cause the whole drug thing, I was like, eh, whatever, like drugs, I don't care. But like, yeah, having like him in for hire on the web platform and stuff like that. That was what I was like, oh, damn. Okay. So it was operating from the February 2011 to October 2013 and provided services to over 100,000 buyers. Ross Albecht was arrested on October of 2013 in a San Francisco public library. Teach him to read. Yeah. Well, one hopes that, that that since he's credited with coding all of this stuff, he knew at least how to read a little bit. <laughs> but the FBI seized about 145,000 Bitcoin, just shy of that, uh, and charged Albrecht with uh, several charges, including narcotics trafficking, money laundering, and computer hacking. And they added those murder for hire charges, but in the end, they weren't able to convict on them. But they did get him for basically everything else. Okay. And in May 2015, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Damn. The actual sentence was a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the upshot. So the interesting coda on this that I never heard about 
was that in November 2020, 69,370 Bitcoins were transferred from a Bitcoin address associated with Silk Road worth approximately $1 billion at that time. It was revealed later that the transfer had been made by the U.S. government as a civil forfeiture action with a wallet belonging to an individual who acquired them by hacking Silk Road. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So versus the 2015 sentencing of, of Albrecht, the value of that of that set of Bitcoins went up by a factor of about 58. Damn. Yeah. So the last bit on tumblers, I got two recent stories that came up about, about um, the Department of Justice and tumblers. Um, so in 2020, uh, a guy named Larry Harmon was indicted by the Department of Justice on money laundering charges. He's alleged to have operated a darknet-based tumbler system under the pseudonym Helix in association with the darknet marketplace Alpha Bay. The indictment charges that over 300 million was laundered in, through his scheme. Although this is a difficult thing because depending on how long it was and how many Bitcoins were involved, the money at the time may not have been worth that much hmm. and the details weren't in the press release. In fact, the next one, similar problem in terms of the total value. In April 2021, Roman Sterlingoff, a Swedish and Russian dual citizen national was arrested at LAX on criminal charges for various offenses related to money laundering. He is alleged to have operated Bitcoin Fog from earlier, uh, the longest running Tumblr known. And the charges from the DOJ that he, ele- that he is alleged to have money, uh, money laundered uh, 1.2 million Bitcoins, which at the time of an indictment, an indictment was val- is valued at $335 million. Damn. So it's important to note that relatively recently the department of justice is a taking this seriously and b getting arrests Mm -hmm. right yeah in fact we'll have a little bit more about that later but besides using bitcoins for criminal activity are bitcoins safe well there's been a lot of bitcoin thefts going back to 2011 but i have a list of several of them and like we said previously blockchains can't be reversed so all you need to do is Compromise the wallet, either as talking, in fact, going back to your example of your of your um, ex-brother-in-law's computer, all someone needs to do is get access to the private key for the wallet. Mm-hmm. And you could do that through either straight getting the private key and all the associated metadata, or you can in, invoke the transaction from that user's computer when the wallet's unlocked. Either way, if you steal all the Bitcoins, you don't need any more access than that. Mm, right. And because there's no structural way to reverse or avoid a transaction, it happened and you can't do anything about it. Right. So we've got things like Mt. Gox, um, which was a Japanese crypto exchange going uh, back for that operated between 2011 and 2014, had about 350 million worth of Bitcoin stolen and uh, they had to basically dissolve. Really? Oh, geez. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a few others. In fact, a very recent one, uh, uh, the Poly Network suffered a loss of about $600 million or $611 million worth of various crypto coins in August of 2021. The weird thing about that one was the funds were returned by the hackers. And it's theorized that part of the reason for that was that that amount of money was really difficult to launder. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the thing is that we know that there's still a bunch of stuff going on. So it might be that they that the 
the hackers didn't have the infrastructure already set up and didn't have the contacts to make that happen. Mm. Or they were relatively unsophisticated and they transited to a wallet that they couldn't do anything with. Because similarly, the colonial pipeline, the ransomware attack that happened, a lot of that money was recovered. I think we, we talked about this on the, on the ransomware episode mm-hmm. because the wallet address was compromised. Right, yeah. They were able to get a significant amount of that money back. But because it was a um, ransomware as a service kind of thing, best we can tell is the folks that ran the ransomware as a service got their end and the folks that actually invoked it and compromised the colonial pipeline and everything, mm-hmm. they're the ones that, that that lost out. Right. I do, I do remember us talking about that, yeah. And then there was another thing that isn't crime but is a kind of a danger in cryptocurrency there was a a corp coin system where they accidentally dispersed about 90 million dollars more than they expected Mm. and due to a software glitch and same kind of thing i mean it was their fault rather than a um something malicious but they weren't able to recover that they were asking their their customers to to return the money because they can't void the transaction right because blockchain yeah oh actually there's one other cryptocurrency crime there's a guy uh in england whose computer was compromised by these two teenagers that stole six bitcoins and the guy figured out who it was but the guys are mine but the teenagers were minors at the time and he's trying to sue the parents to get the money back ah uh-huh. <laughs> Like the, the fact that it's non-reversible, um, it, it reminds me of that. Was it isn't like a monopoly uh, card that you, you pull and it's like, oh, the bank errors in your favor, clucked like yes. fifty dollars. And I was I like playing that game. I'm like, the bank never errors in your favor. Like if they do, they just take the money back. Like, but in this yeah. case, it would actually be like, oh, sorry. And in fact, they do claw money. Banks do claw money back. Uh, the only times that the bank is even kind of screwed is if you spent the money first which does occasionally happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even, <laughs> I feel like I had a friend do that one time where he he got an extra $50 or something and he like spent it and then the bank actually like came after him for the money that they had excellent put into his account. Yeah, but debt collection in the US. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so in terms of malware, we know that, that Bitcoin and a lot of cryptocurrencies are used in malware. The first time, well, or at least the first big time it happened I don't think we have solid, solid information on this, but it was definitely the, the first big time it happened was CryptoLocker, as we talked about in Ransomware Episode 2. I think it was Episode 2. It might have been episode one, a tail end of Episode 1. Um, I was looking back at my script, and I don't remember where we ended and started the <laughs> second episode. Um, anyway, um, so it's been used in Ransomware a lot. Uh, I think the comment that I'm going to make is that the larger... The, uh, the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin's getting so big and so expensive that it's not great for the transaction volume and it's so scrutinized. Um, but you, so you have to have the combination of one that's not getting a ton of scrutiny, but on the other end, it's gotta be widely accessible enough where your ransomware is not the majority of the transactions that are being done in that cryptocurrency because you need to be able to hide in the weeds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's an interest, a little bit of an interesting problem. And we've we've definitely seen, at least in my ransomware research, uh, a lot of variation in payoff methods uh, that I think are involved that that particular kind of of difficulty. Mm -hmm. 
Also, <laughs> there's, again, the, the United States uh, government is doing more stuff now, specifically related to the criminal use of, um, of cryptocurrencies. Um, the Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control has published an advisory uh, that Department of Treasury um, sanctions apply to crypto coin transactions with sanctioned entities. That was recent, right? Yeah, the uh, the advisory I was reading was in September, but at Black Hat, I definitely went to another um, another talk about ransomware and the legal implications of it. And there was a whole few, several minutes about, about the fact that the OFAC sanctions apply to your, your ransomware payments. And if you want to buy those Bitcoins, mm-hmm. the bank that you're getting, that you're pulling the money out from is also bound by the OFAC. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. So they're like, oh, why do you need this 1.5 million? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to buy Bitcoins with that. Really? What are you doing with those Bitcoins? Oh, we need to pay our ransomware off. Oh, who are you paying off? <laughs> because if they're sanctioned, we can't let you do this. Oh, yeah. I should have pulled some of the penalties on this, but they are steep and they're nothing to sneeze at. So those are things that, that you have to worry about. Iran, there are several sanctions entities, and those can also be individuals and organizations. And the reason why I started doing this episode now is that very recently, recording this in October 2021, 20, uh, in September 2021, the US Department of the Treasury place sanctions on crypto exchange SUEX because of their involvement with uh, several ransomware's uh, payment mechanisms. Mm. So those are on the sanction list specifically because they were involved in ransomware. And it's credited like with nearly half a billion dollars worth of, worth of damage in just this year. Right, Jeez. yeah. So they've done it once and there's no reason to suspect that they won't do it further times the more an exchange if an exchange can be targeted to be used in this way right so if you have to pay it off you may be fortunate in that the folks you're paying off aren't sanctioned but the likelihood of that is going to decrease as time goes on if this trend continues Cheers. so there's the first pass at uh, at at bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh talk how about it i think to just add um we should maybe do a follow-up episode later on because there's been a lot of um scam cryptocurrencies coming mm-hmm. as of late like i know a lot of streamers and everyone's just trying to get in the game to like you know make a quick buck off a pyramid scheme that involves cryptocurrency and then just like you know bail out absolutely in fact i i, I started seeing some of that stuff and i was like i'm not gonna be able to work it into this episode yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, might, it might be a nice little like extra extra episode or like a smaller episode or something like that but i mean honestly we're we're trying to do hacker history here so the so us doing uh another episode of kind of uh an anthology of some of those stories may very well be the thing i've uh I've been kind of uh, meaning to talk to talk with you about trying to do a couple of episodes where we're doing the dueling banjos thing, where you come up with you research a, a handful of stories and I research a handful of stories and we go back and forth. Oh yeah, that would be fun. But yeah, I, I like this episode. Um, if anything, it taught me that I should have gone into Bitcoin uh, much earlier. Yes, so I, I missed out both on Bitcoin and I missed out on GameStop stock. So uh, fuck. <laughs> well, uh, when it crashes, you can feel good about that. Yeah, we go. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. 
Follow Hack the Gibson One on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.